Welcome to Reframe and Reset Your Career, a career development podcast to help if you're looking for a job, feeling stuck in your career, looking to change your perspective, or just rediscover your why. I'm your host, Harsha Borolesa, and this podcast came about from my passion for neuroscience and psychology and their interaction with career and personal development. In each episode, I will be interviewing recognized experts and successful professionals and asking them about their career journey, their real life experiences, and to share the insights and strategies that have helped their careers thrive. Implementing change is not easy and does take time, but I do hope that their stories will inspire you to take a fresh look at your career and assist you on your path to a more successful and fulfilling career. Here are some highlights of today's episode. That lack of control is what really bothered me. Only imposters don't have imposter syndrome. I was not comfortable leaving it to chance. And if you're looking to, to kind of build this forever employable career in-house, then you need to understand where things are headed. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Reframe and Reset Your Career podcast. I'm delighted to welcome Jeff Gotthalf. Welcome, Jeff. Hey, Harsha. It's a pleasure to be here. Brilliant. Jeff helps organizations build better products and executives build the cultures that build better products. He is the co-author of the award-winning book, Lean UX, and the Harvard Business Review Press book, Sense and Respond. Starting off as a software designer, Jeff now works as a coach, consultant, and keynote speaker, helping companies bridge the gaps between business agility, digital transformation, product management, and human-centered design. Most recently, Jeff co-founded Sense and Respond Press, a publishing house for practical business books for busy executives. His most recent book, Forever Employable, was published in June 2020. Welcome, Jeff. Thanks so much, Harsha. It's a pleasure to be here. No, no, thanks so much, Jeff, for taking the time. And uh, you're based in Barcelona, uh, I gather. I- is that right? I am. I am. A lovely city. Possibly the most lovely city in the world. <laughs> Fantastic. So, Jeff, normally the way I like to start the show is asking my guests if they'd like to share a quote with the listeners. Is there one that resonates with you, Jeff? Yeah. So the, the quote that always resonates with me, it's interesting. It started as a professional mantra if you will, about 15 years ago. And I've really applied it to everything in my life. And the quote is, do less more often. What I mean by that, and and who would I attribute that to? I don't even know who to attribute that to. Maybe it's Janice Frazier, who is a designer, product manager, entrepreneur, author, speaker, out uh, now venture capitalist, I think out in San Francisco. But the do less more often basically means that Instead of of kind of taking huge, massive risks in anything professional or personal, we just do less of that, but we do it more frequently. So you're taking the, the, the big effort, but you're chopping it up into smaller pieces and then learning from those smaller pieces and then deciding more effectively with evidence what to do next. You asked where, you know, where we live here in Barcelona, we, that's a big change, right? And so we actually did less more often instead of just taking kind of a blind leap of faith, picking up the kids and moving to a country where we don't speak the language or don't know anybody, that type of thing. We experimented, we moved, moved to other countries 
for one month at a time every summer with the kids. And we experimented with living in those places for a month in fairly ideal situations, conditions. Each one of those experiments, right? So we did less of the big move, right? We did smaller moves and we did it more often. So instead of doing it sort of once every five years or once every 10 years or whatever, we did it every, every year for a month, collected evidence, and then decided ultimately where we actually wanted to make the big move to. And, and in that case, Barcelona was the winner. Yeah, brilliant. No, that, that, that's fascinating. And I, I think that can also be applied to your career in the sense of trying new things, maybe um, at the weekend doing a course if you're interested in another area, or even in terms of um, you know, technology. When you're, if you're designing something, do something you know, quickly in short sort of bursts get the feedback and then come back and reiterate. Because I think sometimes people are so concerned about, you know, making big, big changes, but actually making those small steps. And I think the, the great thing you did was get the evidence and get the feedback to figure out what worked and what didn't. Is, is that right? Absolutely, right? You're doing less more often means that you are collecting evidence. Like you have, an, you have a big idea. You like the idea, but it's risky. And, and again, it could be changing jobs, changing careers. Um, it could be changing where you live, a variety of different things. And so how do you do less of that, which is an interesting challenge, right? Especially when you have a thing like moving house or changing jobs or changing careers. And how do you do it more often with the goal of collecting more data, right? More evidence to make a better decision. So like you said, you could take a course on the weekends to learn about a new, a new way of working. You could reach out to people who do that job today and, and say, hey, let me buy you a coffee. And let me just ask you, you know, a few questions about what it's like to do what you do for a living, right? The good, the bad, the ugly. All of these are, are examples of do less more often. Brilliant. And if we sort of take it right back to the beginning, Jeff, in, in your life, I, I love music and I was intrigued when I saw that you started off as a musician in a band. Uh, what, what was that like? What was your sort of style of music? It was the most fun and the most uh, broke <laughs> I ever was in my life. Uh, my dad played piano growing up. There was always a piano in the house. I still plays, you know, and so we took lessons as kids. I ended up taking to it and started playing in bands in high school and then in university. Towards the end of university, I'd found some guys to play with who we got along well. We liked the music. We believed in it. And so we set out to try to, you know, do it for real. I toured with two bands up and down the East Coast of the United States for a few years. And I have incredible memories, incredibly fun times. I loved it, but it was, it was brutal. You know, we, we made nothing, you know, just, just enough to maybe sustain the business, if you could call it that. We all had sort of crappy part-time jobs to supplement paying the rent and buying food. But all those guys to this day are still my best friends. We talk almost every day and it's been a long time since we played music together. Um, and everybody's sort of globally distributed with kids and families and that type of thing. And it's, um, but it was great. It was really amazing. And again, you know, it's, it's interesting. You kind of look back on things like that and you, you I use those memories, those experiences today to remind me that I've done crazy things, that I've done entrepreneurial things. Like being in a band is, is being an entrepreneur, right? You've got a crazy idea. You think it's going to change the world and everybody's going to love it. You pour everything you have into it. I'm really trying to build a viable movement or a business around it. It's hard work. It brings a lot of competition, a lot of noise out there. At least you didn't die wondering, thinking about, you know, you're not looking back 
and thinking oh, if I wish I'd gone down that that road, which which is a good thing. And then then I think you also worked as an intern for a record studio in New York City on the night shift, and that sounded like a pretty brutal job. And and it's <laughs> funny because I I read in your book you used to take that bus from Port Authority to Jersey, and I've actually taken it a couple of times. It's it's a nice bus. But yeah, doing that at early, early in the morning, I don't think is the greatest thing in the world. No, it's where I ended up sleeping on that bus. Listen, and that was a, another really interesting gig. You know, it was, it was the it was right before I just, we decided to really take the the band full time. It was the summer of 1994. I was going to go into audio production. That was going to be my career. I, basically, my my degree was in media production, and and so I got it. I, I sent. I think maybe like. A hundred letters, actual letters with a stamp, <laughs> you know, uh, to recording studios all over the New York City metro area. And I got a couple of responses. And this one studio called Soundtrack Studios in New York City and 21st and Broadway said, you can come be an intern. And it actually paid. I think they paid me $150 a week. Three dollars an hour. Or something like that. <laughs> Not paying. a lot of money. Not a lot of money, but and it was the night shift because this the studio did commercial jingles during the day, and at night is when they did music, and so they would do hip hop, rock, uh, soundtracks to to movies. All that stuff happened at night, and so if you wanted to learn about it. That's where it was. And I was definitely the lowest man on the totem pole when it came to sort of the hierarchy of the studio. And, and my shift would start at 11 p.m. every night and it would end at 8 a.m. the next day. And I would take that bus home, uh, a reverse commute back to my parents' house in New Jersey. And look, it was a crazy, it was a summer. I did it for a summer. It was crazy. Uh, it was hard staying, staying up all night and sleeping all day. You know, and it's tough. It's tough being go get popcorn, you know, go clean the bathrooms, like go buy Heavy D a beer. Heavy D wants a beer, go get him a beer. Like rest in peace, Heavy D. But like he was there that summer, summer 94, right? Like LL Cool J needs a snack. Run down to the store and get a snack for LL Cool J. It's like, okay, like there's worse things to do, right? But you're definitely that that guy. You know, that was that was my gig. And, uh, and so then that Jay, Jay-Z, was he around at that time? No, no. no. <laughs> I, I mean, the biggest, uh, the biggest celebrities I met that summer, uh, L Cool J by far, and by far the most professional act to come through that studio all summer. I mean, he was already a massive star in 1994, and he was a, su- he was a pro. Other people I met, Heavy D and the boys, uh, and the boys. Uh, it was a, uh, it was a crazy, it was crazy. Some really good time. Yeah, I think if you like music, it must be great. But I, I think I, I like the way that you know, in terms of you, you, you try to sort of follow your passion and your dreams. But I think you realize the reality of um, you need to be able to earn a living and pay the bills. And yeah, I, I mean, look, I was making, I was making three dollars an hour as an intern. The next step up was assistant engineer, which would realistically be the next job that I could aspire to in the studio. And in 1994, that paid $6.50 an hour. These guys, I mean, even in 1994, $6.50 an hour, you had to work 100 hours a week to, to live in New York City. Sorry, that, that wasn't, wasn't going to be me. Yeah, and I just love the way you sort of look into the future and you think, well, look, this is not sustainable. And then you move, and, and you move from that into, I think, designing websites and UX work. And for our yeah, listeners... Yeah. Who, who may not be familiar with the term UX. Would you like to just give a, a brief overview of that? I, I know it's difficult. Absolutely. Look, I mean, it's, it's, if, if there were a bunch of UX designers listening, it would be a big can of worms because everybody defines it on their own. But no, I, I got tired of, of being broke. And, and so in 1999, the internet, the Web 1.0 
world was coming up, sort of the dawn of the dot-com age, and getting a, a gig as a designer and a UX designer as a user experience designer was relatively easy. User experience design, while the the specifics of it have evolved in the last 20, 25 years because the technology has evolved. The short of it is it's about designing the logic for any website or piece of software or application, the positioning on the page of certain elements, the information architecture. So where does all the content live and how is it categorized and how does it link to each other and the flow. So kind of does, like does the process, if you think about like checking out on Amazon, right? What are the steps to check out uh, when you buy a product on Amazon, a UX designer decided what those steps should be and, and designed that user experience. But there's, there's lots more to it, but roughly speaking, that's what UX design is. Oh, brilliant. And as I mentioned to you before, um, I find that quite interesting because I've been using a, a tool called Figma, um, which you may have mm. come across, and I've been you know, work, trying to design an app. And it's interesting until you actually go into the nuts and bolts of thinking who's the end user and, and about their journey. And there's so much more to it than you realize. Tremendous amount of work and testing and validation and really trying to best understand who you are, the user, and what you're trying to achieve and how can we make you the most successful. Brilliant. Um, and, I, and I believe the uh, book Information Architecture for the World Wide Web, that had a profound effect on your career at the time. I, I, is that right? It, yeah, it's amazing. And, and, and look, so I got tired of being broke, musician and, and studio intern, and started working as a, as a designer in the, you know, the initial dot-com world, Web 1.0. And very shortly, as I started works, one of, somebody came into the office and they held up this book called Information Architecture for the World Wide Web. Um, by the way, that book is, today it's in its fourth edition. So Gosh. it's pretty remarkable for a book that came out 22 years ago. I read that book over the weekend and decided that that was for me because that really led me down this path of user experience design because it moved me further upstream in the decision-making process of building these software products. Information architecture, as I mentioned before, is deciding how to organize information, how to categorize it, how to link pieces of content to each other, um, how to help people find their way through an application or, or an experience. And that really made sense for me. And that book really changed my life. And what's, what's amazing is that over the years, there's two authors of that book. There's, I think there's one more now in the fourth edition. But the original two authors, I've had the pleasure of meeting multiple times, uh, P Peter Morville and, and Lou Rosenfeld. And I'm proud to call Lou Rosenfeld a friend these days. And I've told him many times, and I highly recommend if you get a chance to meet folks who've had this kind of impact on you. I've told him many times that his book changed my life. Like I read his book, made a particular career decision because of that book and never looked back, really just went down a, a very successful career path because I read the, their book. You know, I think uh, we, we have a, a mutual friend, Dor Dory Clark, who I, I uh, came across her work and, and eventually I managed to reach out to her and um, connect with her. And it's nice when you get the chance to sort of actually meet somebody who you've uh, admired their work and can tell them uh, that they've had a, a big impact on you. Absolutely. And, and look, it's, 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 I can tell you that being someone who has written a few books and occasionally hears something like that from readers of my books, it's massively validating, right? It's like, you know, you, especially in the last 18 months, right? But you toil away behind these screens and, you know, just typing away and you hope that you're having an impact on some folks and you can see that some folks are reading it. But when someone actually is moved enough 
to reach out and say, hey, Jeff, that thing that you wrote really helped me. It's, it's massively validating and it's hugely encouraging. So, so if, if you're listening and there's something that you've read or something that you've consumed that, that's impacted you significantly, tell the creator, tell the author. They want to hear it 100%. And that's interesting, that whole process of writing and creating product. You are so removed from your audience. Um, and, and actually, uh, I'm, I'm sort of going through the process of doing some writing. And you know, I was speaking to my editor. And actually, when you hear validation from her saying, oh, this is not bad, then you think, oh, it was, it's actually worthwhile doing the work. Because otherwise, you're in this bubble and you're in your lane and you're thinking, I just want to get the work done. But you have no idea whether this is good or bad. So I think you know, it's nice when you have interaction with other people and they can tell you, um, you know, give you feedback. There's an infinite number of channels that you can use to, to, to tell your story. And before the pandemic, a lot of those channels were live and in person. Certainly there was writing as well. But for me, particularly, you know, I was on the road a lot before the pandemic. And so I was either in front of people teaching or giving a talk in a big room. And in those live situations, you can feel whether or not you're having an impact on the folks who are consuming your content. You can see it, you can hear it, you can feel it in the room, and you can tell when it's working, when it's not working. Other channels like writing, tweeting, blogging, you know, et cetera, and especially in the last 18 months, working primarily from home and really not, not going anywhere, it's really difficult to, to get that sense of whether or not, I mean, look, sales views, shares, right? All of these sort of behaviors that people do if they like your stuff, that helps. But it's it's infinitely, frankly, it's infinitely more meaningful to me for someone to send me a note and say, I read that book, I read that thing. And wow, I'm really rethinking everything right now. Thank you. Infinitely more powerful. Don't worry, Jeff, we'll have all your uh, communication channels um, on the show notes. Uh, you'll have a deluge of people <laughs> sending stuff to you in Barcelona. Perfect. Brilliant. You, you sort of got into the whole UX um, game. Um, you got experience and, and in a wide variety of jobs. But then I think what I find really interesting is that you had this defining moment in your sort of life and career when you were 35 and you decided, look, at that point, you were no longer going to look for jobs. They were going to find you. I just find that so fascinating uh, because so many people would think, well, you know, we'll have blind faith that things will turn out okay, but you actually took action. Do you want to just give a few insights into that? Yeah. So in, re in recent years, I've adopted a phrase that I learned in a TED talk, which is like the most cliche thing you can ever say, right? But there's a, there's a TED talk um, by a guy named Astro Teller. That's his real name. Great name. Uh, he's the guy. Who, yeah, it's a great name. And he runs the innovation lab at, at Google. Uh, it's called X is the name of the, the innovation lab. And he has a TED Talk. And in that TED Talk, among many other smart things, he uses a phrase called enthusiastic skepticism. Uh, enthusiastic skepticism means that like, hey, things might be good, but I'm skeptical that these are the best. This is the best that things can be. And I'm enthusiastic about finding better ways. It turns out that to me, like my, I've been living my whole life enthusiastically skeptical. <laughs> and that manifested, I think, for the first time, kind of physically, frankly, on the morning of my 35th birthday, because I've been working for about 10 years. I did the music thing for a while. I had done pretty well. I became the director of user experience at a company in New York City called The Ladders. I had a team, good salary. I was married by that time. I, my daughters were born, house, like the American dream, right? Two cars, house, the whole, the whole thing. 
I, I woke up 10 years into my career on, on when I turned 35 and the enthusiastic skepticism kicked into a panic attack, uh, which I was like, what's happening here? And it took me a little while to figure it out. But what I realized a few, a few hours later was the reason I was freaking out on the morning of my 35th birthday was because it, it subconsciously dawned on me that in five years, I'm going to be 40. And from that side of 40, 40 feels old. It feels like the end of the road. Now, look, from this side of 40, hey, <laughs> I'm looking forward to being 40 again. You're still um, looking good, Jeff. <laughs> when you're 35, you know, especially in tech, it's like, well, in five years, I'm going to be 40. And not only am I going to be 40, I'm going to be expensive. And my paranoia was that I was going to be unemployable. Like I was making $175,000 a year as the director of user experience in New York This is when I was 35. Um, I saw colleagues of mine who were a little bit older than me moving on to their next gigs, you know, and they were looking for gigs paying 200, 225 because their standard of living had grown. Their kids had gotten older. They were living in the New York City suburbs and they were struggling. I was convinced that that was not going to be me. I was not going to end up in a situation where in five years, I was going to be too expensive and unemployable. And so I decided, and, and I realized that the, the, if I continue down the same path, kind of the story that we've been sold our entire lives is go to college, get a job, work hard, get a promotion, get a, you know, move to another company, get a little bit more money, a little bit more responsibility, but climb that corporate ladder, right? My realization, what's my paranoia, or you can call it my enthusiastic skepticism, was that I was going to start, I was doing really well following that plan, and I was going to start losing. And in that world, in, in that process, you are giving up control of your career, right? You're saying, I'd like to find a new job. Or maybe somebody says, go, you need to go find a new job, right? Because you're getting fired. You put yourself out there. You push yourself into opportunities. You push yourself into the market. You throw your resume out there, your CV, and you hope that somebody will choose you. They'll choose you for a phone screen. They'll choose you for an interview. They'll choose you for a job. That lack of control is what really bothered me. If I could figure out how to reclaim control over my career. So instead of me pushing myself out into the market, if I could create a situation where I'm attracting, I'm pulling opportunities towards me, well, that would guarantee that no matter what came my way, whether I was 35 or 40 or 45 or whatever, there was always an inbound stream of opportunities. And so that's what I decided to do that morning. I then went and tried to figure out how to do it for the last 13 years. But that's, that was the big decision and the rationale for that decision that day. And did, did you have a good birthday party that night, Jeff? I did. I've got pictures from that day. You know, my kids, my kids who are now 18 and 14 were, I guess they were five and one. But, but from a sort of practical perspective, I, I just love this whole idea of you, you get to a certain level, that sort of mid-level mid uh, sort of manager, and then you look at the future. Because I think there are so many people who get to that level and they think, wow, I've done really well. Um, and, and you almost like extrapolate from there to the future and think, look, I, I'm earning this much now. Maybe in two years, I'm going to earn more. I, I keep working up the ladder. But actually, I think yeah. what people don't realize is that the, the number of jobs that are available, especially at that rate, is de declining because yeah. you can only have so many head ofs um, and chief whatevers. So, mm -hmm. you know, that's one thing. But also then there's there are sort of... Um, 
shifts in the market, you know, because if if you have a lot of people moving into a certain area or there's not as much growth, then actually the numbers just don't stack up. So you need to start thinking about how you can, you know, switch up your career to some extent. So I think that was really clever the way you decided to think, okay, how can I be a bit more strategic and just think um, about looking in the future and, and changing things up? Look, I didn't, I, again, I was not comfortable leaving it to chance. Like you said, right? So by design, it gets narrower, narrower at the top, right? That's by design, like you said. In the design world, it's even steeper. The, the op- number of opportunities, like chief design officer, it's like four of them in the world, right? Like, I mean, there are more, right? But basically, like compared to like, a, you know, every company has a COO, a CIO, a CTO. It's only one of them per company, but not every company is a chief design officer, chief experience officer, that type of thing. So I was, I was not comfortable leaving that to chance. I mean, you have, you know, the kids, they got to eat, got to pay the mortgage, got to pay the, you know, the cars, and everything. And so I was not going to find myself in a situation where I was caught flat footed. That was to me, that was, that was the, the biggest motivation was making sure that I took care of my family continuously. And also I think the second point that I, I really like is this whole idea of control. And I've been thinking about that a lot, you know, just in terms of we, we think we have to give up so much control in our lives, but actually we have far more than we think, you know, we can choose where to live to some extent, we can choose where to work, we can choose what, what we can do. And I think that whole idea of taking back control. And I think this other point you, you mentioned, I think either in one of your talks in your book, thinking about your career um, as a product, having this sort of startup mentality. And I think that really changes the way you interact with your employer. Because otherwise, you know, I think if you think of yourself as a startup, you've got these particular assets, whether it's your education or your experience. And then rather than going cap in hand to your employer and you know, looking for them to choose you, you're saying, well, I'm actually, I'm the asset. I'm, I'm going to lease my services to you. That's a very subtle shift, but I, I think that's quite profound because if you start thinking of yourself in, the, in those terms as the star or the asset and not just the, a commodity, then it just changes things quite dramatically. Yeah, it's, it's a reclamation of control, right? So it is profound, right? It sounds like a subtle shift in words, but it's not. It's not. It's, it's you realizing that your employer gets exponential value from the time, expertise, and experience that you give to your job. And so they need you, right? And you are providing them with a service that should continuously improve over time. And look, it's, it's up to you to make sure that you are continuously improving what you're offering and that you continue to provide a valuable service to your employer, right? So that's, it's up to you to pay attention to the market, to what the, what the company needs, what the company's going through, strategically where it's headed, how can you be of best service there? But the, but the reality is, is that you are providing a service to these folks. You're providing, you can call it a service, you can call it a product, and they are consuming that from you. Now, if you're not getting the kind of returns on the investment that you've made in yourself and in your career and your expertise, then it's time to rethink that relationship. And I think particularly today, we are seeing the future of work being redefined. We're seeing a lot of control being pushed back to the employees. They're choosing where to work. They're choosing how to work. They're choosing what to do. 
I, I just read this, I read this crazy article the other day about actually a UX designer of all people, just sort of coincidentally, she has three full-time jobs. Wow. Yeah. She makes 300 grand a year, wow. three full-time jobs out of a van in the U S like she chose, she's not homeless. She has chosen to live in a van. She drives around the country. She sets up shop somewhere near a beach or a mountain or whatever. Um, and she maintains three full-time jobs. Now, look, I think it's a little crazy, but it's impressive at the same time. And she does this by choice. She's reclaiming and redefining, reclaiming her career, redefining what it means to be employed and what it means to have a career. And, and it's remarkable. Have you come across Cal Newport? Because I think one of his books, his early book, he talks about the, the key thing is to have these rare and valuable skills, which just make you so um, employable. Your uh, employer, they, they can see the value that you bring to the table. And I think it's sort of similar to what we're talking about, just making sure that you have these skills, which are just so rare and valuable which um, just make you so highly desirable. Because if you think about it, your employer, they're, they're not, they're, they're rational people. They're not going to employ somebody who's not providing in, enough value. They're, they're, they're only picking you because you have value to provide to them. Yes. And look, and inevitably, in most professions, that the, the need that they have evolves. And if you're looking to, to kind of build this forever employable career in-house, then you need to understand where things are headed and be ready for that. Get, get ahead of, you know, so, so, so when the company needs that thing, you're there. Totally. And I suppose the other point you're making is that you also need to um, you have that self-awareness to see where the market is, what, what's going on, and, and look for these opportunities. Because just doing the work, I mean, that, that's obviously important. But also through thinking about the future, thinking about how your industry is evolving. And, and be at the forefront of that change rather than be swept along by it and potentially be made redundant. So look, this is enthusiastic skepticism. Some people will say, well, that's a crappy way to live, Jeff. Like always sort of looking for the next thing or a better way or something like that. And I get that, right? It, it does feel a little stressful. Like you can't really relax and take it easy. Well, I think you can relax, but I, I, do, I do believe that this is, this is the manifestation of that quality of enthusiastic skepticism is to say, look, I got a good job. I'm doing great, making money. I'm, 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 I like what I'm doing. I love it. But the pace of change in the world today is so fast. Be comfortable where you are, but pay attention to where everything's headed so that you're not caught flat-footed. I remember, I'll give you an example. We talked about that bus uh, from, from Jersey to Port Authority in New York City earlier. Um, when I lived in New Jersey, I took the train to work most days. When I, you know, fast forward, I don't know, 10, 15 years later, I actually was living in New Jersey again with my family and, and, and had a job. And I would take the train in every day. And I remember there was one guy on the train who was a talented graphic designer. His specialty was print, print graphic design. Everything was going digital, everything. And he was falling behind. His digital graphic design skills weren't there. He, didn't, he, he couldn't get hired. And he was, you know, he was a middle-aged guy with the kids and a house in the suburbs. And, and, he, and he refused. He was stubborn. He's like, no, I'm a, gra I'm a print graphic designer. This is what I'm going to do. I was like, well, as a print graphic designer, you're going to be unemployed. Okay? <laughs> right? Or you're going to struggle to feed your family if you don't pay attention to the trends about where this is heading. 
right? And so you've got to pay attention to where things are headed. Great point. And I suppose now moving on to your book, Jeff, you love the book Forever Employable. And I think there you talk about these five qualities which um, are needed to be forever employable. And I think they're entrepreneurialism, self-confidence, continuous learning, improvement and reinvention. Do you just want to give a quick high level um, overview of, of the book? Absolutely. So Forever Employable is my, my most recent book. It's about a year old now. It's, it's, um, it's the fourth book that I've written. It's also the most different. The first three books were really focused on either technology or the business of technology or the process of technology. But Forever Employable really says, look, take all the things that you've learned about digital product development and design and apply them to your career in such a way that creates this, uh, this opportunity magnet you can call it a career safety net. You can call it a reputation or a personal brand or a network, or Dory Clark calls it recognized expertise. That's what you're ultimately doing. And the book describes, starting from that story when I turned 35, sort of how I went about doing this and how others have done this. They've taken their expertise, their experience, their passion, and they've created a platform, a content platform around themselves that advertises their expertise to the world, builds an audience, builds a network, and attracts opportunities towards them. And to do that, and, and, that's, and so the book is very specific and very practical and tactical about how to do that. To do that, one thing I discovered in myself were these five qualities that you just mentioned, entrepreneurialism, self-confidence, continuous learning, improvement, and, and reinvention. You know, in the conversation we've had so far, we've covered the need for these qualities, so entrepreneurialism, right? It's about you taking control of your career and really treating you as a startup or as a product or as a service. You know, Self-confidence is the, is the ability to put yourself out there and, and claim some aspect of your industry, your domain as your own to say, look, I am an expert in X. Continuous learning is, is about saying, look, the, the world is, is moving and I'm gonna stay hungry, I'm gonna stay curious. I'm going to stay skeptical. And so I've got to understand and consume continuously articles, blog posts, tweets, podcasts, whatever it is, right? Books. And because of that, I'm going to improve what I'm offering. So as I'm learning things, right, there's this sense of continuous improvement. Look, the way that I do what I do today, which I've been doing for over 10 years, is radically different than the way I did it 10 years ago. Fundamentally, the content's the same, but I do it much, much differently because I've learned, I've gotten better. And then lastly, reinvention. Reinvention is the key to longevity. We, we tend to look in a very narrow focus about like, I solve problems for these people in this domain and only in this domain. But the reality is that if you think about sort of the, the root things that you help people do, and then get curious and experimental about, well, how can I do that same thing, but in a different domain? So if, I'll give you, so instead of being so... Vague, let me be specific, right? So I teach digital product development teams how to focus on the customer, how to be more agile, how to design and build great products, how to build cultures that build great products, right? The things that I teach people how to do have direct and broad application in adjacent disciplines like human resources or finance or legal or marketing who never hear about this kind of stuff. And one of the things that I've been actively doing is repositioning myself in these worlds, particularly human resources, to teach them how to bring product thinking and design thinking and agility and customer centricity to the, worlds of, to the world of HR. And that's reinventing myself in a whole new domain, which is massive and provides me a whole new set of opportunities to attract towards myself. 
the, the one point I really liked about that is reinvention, because you think that there's only one path to success. But actually, if you're uh, self-aware about what's going on, keep your eyes open. There are actually a number of different opportunities which just come up, which you may not have thought about. Absolutely. Look, and you see, you see this in a variety of different in, uh, situations. So think about like motivational speakers, right? So I, I'm sure you've either seen them or had them come into your company or whatever it is. I remember like years ago, some astronaut came and gave a motivational talk at some company I worked at. You know, that person is taking their experience and applying it in a different context, right? They're saying, look, I did this thing. You're not going to do the thing that I did. Right? You're not going to space necessarily, but there's a lot to learn from my experience and I'm going to help you learn that. Right? I have a friend, I uh, did a podcast episode with him not too long ago named Alden Mills. Alden right. Mills is a remarkable guy. He's a Navy SEAL. He's an entrepreneur. And so he takes his experience from, from, from the military, from overcoming physical adversity, and he applies them in his books and in his motivational speaking and his entrepreneurial spirit, right? And so there, it, it just takes a little bit of creativity and some experimentation. Again, coming back to do less more often, right? So it's not, it's not about saying, okay, I'm going to take the thing that I do and move it into a domain that I don't understand at all. It's saying, I'm going to take the thing that I do, and I'm going to run a really tiny experiment every week to see if I can make this relevant to a new community, right? And if you take the time and you make the effort, not only to break down the idea, but to test and learn whether or not this actually resonates, well, you get better every week and you kind of get a sense of how to be successful in this new domain. No, no, great, great point. And, and the other thing I, I find interesting is this whole idea of self-confidence. I, I was re, uh, listening to one of your talks and you, you, you say sometimes you feel you have imposter syndrome. If you think about it, you've written four books and you've done all this stuff in, in your life. But I think that's quite nice in a way that you still feel that you're, you're trying to get better and you're trying to improve. And I suppose with self-confidence, is there anything that one can do to try and gain it? Yeah, a, cu- a couple of thoughts on that. So um, look, Here's what I believe. I believe that only imposters don't have imposter syndrome. Right? The, the, the bottom line is this, you know, th- that anxiety that you feel when you're getting up on stage to give a talk or pushing publish on, an, on a blog post or record on a video or a podcast, that's natural, right? It's the sense of like, oh my God, I'm, I, I'm putting myself out there and we hope that people like us and they listen to it and they share and they say nice things to us. The only way to overcome this is to just face it head on and and continuously do the thing that scares you, the thing that makes you feel imposter syndrome. So for example, if speaking in front of people makes you feel like an imposter, go do that a lot. Right? It just gets easier over time. If you know recording podcasts terrifies you, go do that. Practice, get better at it. You will, you will get better at it. One of the most amazing experiences of my life was getting uh, to give a talk at, at Mind the Product in London at the Barbican. The Barbican, first of all, is a beautiful stage. There's, it's, I think it's the, the auditorium we're in fits 2,500, 3,000 people. Most of the seats were filled. The stage has held up legends, David Bowie, you know, just legendary people have set foot on that stage. And again, as, as a musician, that's a big deal for me. I like to stand on the same stage as some of these same folks. And I was giving a talk and it's a talk that I knew. I knew that talk forwards and backwards. This was not the first time I'd given it. I'd rehearsed it. I'd given it in front of people, you know, and you're getting out there 
in front of 2,000 people to give this talk. And it's terrifying for about 30 seconds, right? It's terrifying. And then, and then it's, kind of, it's kind of like a roller coaster. You know, you're like, you, like you're going up, 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 and then you crest. And as you start to go down, you're like, well, we're off, right? It's, it's going to happen. So let's just figure it out. And so to me, it's practice, right? So you build, you build up your self-confidence. The imposter syndrome never goes away. I publish a blog post every Monday. I'm like, no one's going to read this. This is garbage. Like every, you know, and then, and then some people read it. And you're like, oh, okay, some people liked it. That was pretty good. Um, it never goes away, but the persistence to keep doing it—that's what gets you over that hump. And I love that point. I really believe a lot of uh, personal development, career development, it's about execution. A lot of the ideas I think are quite you know, relatively simple, but what people don't do is they don't execute. And if you can execute every day, 365 days a year for however many years, you're going to get better. I, I wrote Forever Employable, my target reader persona. I'm a designer. It's going to be a reader persona. It's a mid-career knowledge worker. And, and more, more specifically, it was somebody I know very well in my life, someone I've known for, for a very long time. And that, and that someone is a friend of mine. He's smart. He's great in public. He's great in front of people. He's super friendly. Uh, he, can, he can write well. He can speak well. He has all the potential to do everything that I've done, to do, to follow the, the ideas in the book, really become forever employable, not panic every time there's a reorg or a merger or an acquisition in his company, but he doesn't execute. He's got all the pieces, but he doesn't put them together in an effort here. And so, yeah, execution is key. You don't, and, and my point is, like, you don't have to have all those pieces, but to your point, if you, if you execute and you practice and you just keep keep getting out there and trying, you get better, you get smarter, you get more successful. And eventually you end up with all the assets that you need to build that platform, to build that network and attract those opportunities towards you. And one day you get Jeff Gotthelf on your podcast. Hey, result. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. But um, moving on to actual the, the, the execution part of Forever Employable, and you have these five steps that you talk about, you know, plant a flag, tell your story, follow the new path, teach and giving it all away. Um, Do you just want to give a quick run through of that, uh, Jeff? Yeah. So that's the process in the book. And it's the process that in hindsight, I followed to build um, my audience and my network, my recognized expertise. So the first thing is plant a flag. Plant a flag means deciding what niche you're going to own, right? So where, what, what part of the world you're going to carve out and say, I am an expert here. I can help you deal with issues and problems and concerns in this world. That's number one. Interestingly, when I first started talking about the book, I was like, everybody knows what they're passionate about. Everybody knows what they care about, what their expertise is. Nope, it's not true. It's actually a much tougher process for a lot of folks. I really was shocked, honestly. I, I led a few workshops when Forever Employable came out about a year ago. And I said, okay, everybody choose the passion that, that you have in your life. And there's so many blank stares. I don't have a passion, you know? It's like, okay. <laughs> um, but that's the, we can talk about how to do that, but that's the first step. The first step is deciding at least initially, again, what you're going to own. Now remember, you don't have to go 100% all in on this. We're gonna build small experiments to test whether this makes sense for you, but you need to decide where to plant your flag. What are you gonna be known for? That's number one. Number two, tell your story. This is now you sharing your expertise about where you planted your flag in every possible way that you can or that you feel comfortable doing because you're testing how to best reach an audience in a way that you're comfortable doing, right? So for example, 
if you're not comfortable writing, you're not a good writer or, or you know, you challenges sitting down and actually writing something, maybe you start making short YouTube videos or you do podcasts or interviews or, or something along those lines, right? But the idea here is that you are practicing telling your story. You're giving talks, you're speaking at meetups, you're doing podcast guest recordings, whatever it is. Um, the idea here is that A, you learn how to tell your story in a compelling way and B, you start to get your ideas out there start to reach that target audience so that they begin to pay attention to you. And again, consistency and frequency is important here. You want to be doing this regularly. There's a variety of ways to do this. Once you start to do that, you're going to open up new opportunities, right? It starts to work. Opportunities start to get attracted to you. That's when you need to follow the new path. That's step number three. Now, these new paths are going to open up. Hey, come give a talk. Oh, I've never given a talk. Hey, come teach a workshop. I've never taught a workshop. Hey, can you write a guest post for our blog? I haven't written anything longer than 300 words and longer than an email in 20 years. I got offered a book deal in 2011. I'd never written anything longer than 750 words. They wanted 50,000. Wow. Right? It's it's just a ridiculous concept. But these are the kinds of opportunities that open up and you've got to start following these paths. That's what you're doing this. Now, it's going to be scary it's new. It's going to pull you away from what you know and what you're doing on a regular basis. But that's how you discover and create these new opportunities. Step four is teach. Now, what's interesting is that I never saw myself as a teacher. I never thought about this. But really, what you're doing as you start to follow these new paths is you are teaching. And so your goal is now to teach your expertise at every opportunity, to become a teacher of the thing that you know how to do. And believe me, the better that you can teach people, the better you can do the job. Every opportunity that you now have to tell your story is an opportunity to teach. What we're doing right now, right? I see that as teaching. Totally, yeah. And then the fifth and final step, and the one that's the least intuitive and the one that took me the longest to learn was to give it all away. There is this sense that, look, I've been working professionally for 20 years. I should be paid for my experience and my expertise. And I wholeheartedly agree. However, the more you give away, the more you give back to the community, the more expertise you share publicly online in tweets and blog posts on LinkedIn and podcasts, YouTube videos, whatever, right? The more opportunities come to you, the better people recognize who you are. The more generous you are to the community, the higher up in the list of potential people to go to when they need help with stuff. Look, if you go to my website right now, jeffgodhealth.com, there are videos on there of me giving keynotes at various conferences around the world. I get hired to give those keynotes all the time, right? When they could just as easily just grab that YouTube clip, put it on a projector in the office, gather everybody around, or just send everybody the link, right? Watch this video. Let's talk about it tomorrow. But I get hired to give those talks all the time. It doesn't make sense, but that's how it works. And that's the fifth step is to give it all away. But Jeff, they're not getting the full Jeff Got Health experience then, are they? (laughs) Fair enough, but those are good. Those are good performances. Like I wouldn't put them up on my site if they were crappy renditions of the of the of the talk. But of course, you know. without a doubt. But but I, I I like this point about telling your story because I think a lot of people think that they don't have anything unique or interesting to tell. But actually, yeah. I think it's quite an interesting experiment to like go and write your backstory and figure out how you got from your your sort of university days to here or. Because I think then you can analyze how did you make these steps or why did you make these steps? And sometimes there, there's a logic to it, which you can't sort of see 
sort of looking forward, but it's like connecting the dots going back. And, mm. and I think for a lot of people, they think, oh, there's, I've got nothing particularly unique about me. But actually, mm. everybody has their unique story. Your, yours is unique. Mine is unique. Everybody has a particular angle. And I think it's, it's figuring out almost like what are the highlights and how can I package that up in this compelling way so that somebody will um, you know, like me or hire me or whatever. People get stuck on that. <laughs> Fire up Google and type in, you know, the name of your domain or your expertise, right? User experience, design, accounting, project management, right? Infinite amount of content. And so it's very, very easy to understand how somebody would be like, what am I going to say? What could I possibly add to this conversation that has not already been said? And that's a fair question, right? It does feel like everything's been said about everything already, but that's not true there is at least one thing that hasn't been said, and that is your story, right? Your experience, your path, the steps that you took to get here, the experience that you've accumulated, the work that you've done, obstacles that you've overcome, the successes that you've won, that hasn't been told. And that's where you start. You tell your story. It's the human side of the content that actually resonates way more than the technical side. That's what people connect with. They connect with the human story. It's difficult to see that and it's, diff- it's, it's unintuitive, but that's what people connect with. It's, it's amazing. But it's interesting. If you look at any sort of career development book or personal development book, it's sort of filled with stories. And, and actually, the, if, you, yeah. if you look at the broad thrust of those books, there's nothing particularly, you know, really groundbreaking in there, but they're just these really nice stories. And I think... Uh, the way I look at it is if you as a reader can connect with those stories and that helps you to execute, then it's done, done its job. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the key. I was just listening to a podcast earlier today uh, on my bike ride and it was an interview of Ali Abdal. Uh, Ali Abdal is a YouTuber, YouTube sensations, got 2 million followers. Uh, he's a, he's a, a British guy, um, went to Cambridge for medical school and started making videos about what it's like to be in medical school. Today he's teaching courses on how to become a YouTube sensation. And what he was talking about in there is he built his course in a way to provide very practical, tactical, technical advice and help to people about how to become successful YouTubers. And he scaled back a lot of the emotional stuff, right? The, oh, I'm, I don't self-confidence, right? I'm not self-confidence, who will listen to me? What if people hate me? That type of thing. And what he noticed was, is that people really, really, what they really wanted was that emotional conversation, that support, that understanding that I'm not alone, that I'm in this as well. It's the humanity that differentiates the content. If you've got 10 people talking about project management, it's the one person who talks about her specific challenges, emotions, whatever it is that throughout a particular process, that's going to resonate more than the other nine who are just talking about here are the five steps I took to achieve the goal. Totally agree. And yeah, I, I, I've come across uh, Ali and yeah, he's got a you know, great YouTube channel. The nice thing about him is, yeah, it's that personal element. You know, he, he also says, you know, you may not think what you have to share is of value or interesting, but just get it out there. And yeah. you never know what, what will resonate with your audience uh, until you sort of produce it and, and get it out there and let them yeah. decide what, what they, they want. Absolutely. Brilliant. And, and just in terms of um, practical advice, Jeff, because obviously this is a, a career development podcast, you know, apart from reading your book and following all the tips that you put in there, what would you say just in terms of practical steps? How do you start the journey to becoming forever employable? 
and I hate to say this, but I think you need to buy into a little enthusiastic skepticism. I don't, I don't believe corporate loyalty is a thing anymore. I don't, you know, my, my best friend's father worked at DuPont for 40 years. I think those days are over. What I would say is this, you have got to take back control of your life, of your career, sorry. How do you do that, right? You do that by asserting yourself as an expert in your field in a public way. And so the first thing is decide where your expertise is and then start participating in public conversations about that wherever you want, wherever you're comfortable, right? Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, I don't know, Medium, Pinterest, forums, wherever your audience is hanging out, start participating in that. Start to get a sense of how to tell your story, what people care about, uh, what resonates with folks, and then double down on the things that actually resonate. Start to build that presence so that you have options. Because the worst place to be is at the mercy of your employer and then they wake up one day and they're like, oh, we got to cut costs. So we're just going to just chop off this department. And then you're caught flat-footed, right? You don't want to be caught flat-footed. And the way that you do that is by using the technology that we have today to create an online presence for yourself. And so that's that's absolutely the key uh, the key step here. And, and what do you talk about? Start telling your story. That's the key. I think that's a great point. And, and just get, get online, you know, build your LinkedIn profile, maybe you know, set up a YouTube channel, um, share your thoughts, because there are lots of ways of, of producing content which aren't particularly um, expensive or take a lot of time uh, do, uh, or write an article. Uh, don't you think so, Jeff? These aren't time-consuming activities necessarily, but you have to uh, make the time for them, right? This has to become a routine. Like if you've got a routine, I wake up, I have my coffee, I work out, I take a shower, I get dressed, I sit down at my desk, that type of thing. Build in a 15 minute window in there for, uh, for writing 150 words, for tweeting three things or whatever it is, but there, there's got to, and, and, and again, find the, find the thing that, that is easiest for you to produce. You know, if you need, if you just point the webcam at yourself, hit record for five minutes, talk about, hey, this morning I woke up and I was thinking about this project I have at work, which is really difficult. And the thing that we're trying to overcome is X. And the way that I'm thinking about doing it is Y. I'm going to try it on Thursday and I'll tell you how it goes next week. Cool. Ship it, publish it and see how it goes. And I like this point about um, habits, because I think if you can make it a habit and just build it into your day, um, even like writing a book, if you think, okay, I need to hit 40,000 words, 50,000 words, reverse engineer and think, okay, how many Words do I need to do a week, a day? Seth Godin has this akimbo writing in community, um, you know, write a book in six months. And that's that whole logic about just, you know, what, what is your final target? Reverse engineer, think what you have to do a small amount every day. And yeah. you can just break everything down in, in really easily. Do less more often. Totally. And Jeff, really appreciate all the time you've given. Um, but I'd just like to end with, is there anybody you'd like to give a, a shout out to? Um, family, friends? Cats, dogs, sports teams. The cat and the dog get enough love. Uh, I will. Uh, I'd love to. I'd love if, to give a shout out to my uh, my longtime co-author, collaborator, friend. I'll say friend. We're friends. Good friends. Uh, Josh Seiden. Josh Seiden and I have been writing books together, building businesses together, delivering work together for well over ten years. I wouldn't be this far along without his help. Brilliant. No, that, that, that's great. And um, obviously, Jeff, I will include all your, um, 
contact details, websites, Twitter, or you know, uh, LinkedIn, all that sort of stuff. So our, our listeners will be able to get hold of you and send kind words, hopefully, to you in Barcelona. Once again, Jeff, thanks so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Uh, and have a, a great uh, rest of the day. Terrific, Arthur. Thanks so much for having me. This was fun. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening and staying to the end. That was such an enjoyable interview. If you would like to listen to more episodes, then please consider subscribing to the podcast, which is available on your favorite providers, and subscription is free. If you wish to learn more about any of the resources mentioned in this episode, please take a look at the show notes, which are available online. Thanks once again for listening. Stay safe and look after yourself. I hope you will join me again in the future.